0: First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, and last week we uh, worked through a couple verses there. And today, because we have uh, communion, uh, we'll be kind of working on our message and see how far we get. I don't know. We've got to end about quarter after so. But Paul writes here in First Thessalonians chapter five, and he starts in verse four, and he says, "While you are not in darkness, brothers." While you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. He calls them children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, but since we belong to the day... Just as you were doing. Now, last week we looked at the contrast between light and darkness in verses 4 and 5, and we went into pretty much detail. We talked about three things. We talked about, first of all, it being a promise. It's a promise that we are not in darkness as believers, we're followers of Christ. And we said, well, what does that word darkness mean? It refers to outer darkness. It refers to chains of darkness. It refers to the power of darkness, the works of darkness. Uh, Those who sit in darkness walk in darkness. It refers to the day of the Lord we saw. And so we know that it has nothing to do with believers because we're not in darkness. As Paul just said, we are in light. We are children of the light. And so it's a promise for us that we don't have to fear the day of the Lord that's pending. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ here today, you might want to fear the day of the Lord. (laughs) You have a lot more to fear than that, but this is why God sent his son to die for us on a cross. This is why we celebrate communion, because we recognize the death of Christ on the cross pays for our sin. And when we put our faith, our trust in Christ and his work on Calvary, God makes us righteous. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ because we don't have any righteousness of our own. We need to understand that. We like to think much about ourselves. We like to think that we're pretty good people. We go to church. We do all this stuff. No, there's nothing good within us at all, especially outside of Christ. And the only good thing we have inside of Christ is the Holy Spirit that resides within us because we still live in this fallen body. So we're, we're struggling at best, but it's a promise that we will not partake of this day of the Lord. We don't have to worry about that. But we should be busy sharing this information with others so they can come to know Christ. And then secondly, we said it's a position. It's a position based on our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And it's not only a promise, but it's a position. And then thirdly, we said it's a practice. And kind of want to pick up here because I didn't really finish all my thoughts last week, but we said it was a practice that those who walk in light are believers, and those who walk in darkness are unbelievers. And the idea of walking really means a way of life. It doesn't mean you mess up once in a while. It doesn't mean you sin occasionally. It means you are practicing sin as a way of life. And if you keep on doing it, there's no conviction that you're not in darkness, in other words, as a child of God, if you're continually living in sin, you might want to go back and question Am I really a child of the light? Am I really in the light? Have I really trusted Christ? Or is this just something somebody told me I did when I was three at some camp or raised, a, raised my hand in a service and everybody congratulated me on being a believer, but nothing had changed. But I just kept coming to church and learned the language. And, you know, there's people like that today, and they need to be warned. I mean, God loves us so much, if you continue as a believer to live in darkness, if you continue to sin willfully, God loves us so much, he, he what? He provides chastening for us. Just like a child, right? If your child is, is misbehaving, a loving parent does what? Corrects the child. See, the problem today in our society is all the parents want to be their children's friends, so they don't correct their children. And you see it every time you go to the grocery store or whatever. The kid's throwing a temper tantrum right, right in the hallway or whatever. Someone asked me one time, well, what does your daughter do when your, your grandchildren do that? And I said, well, I'm sure they've done it maybe once. <laughs> and they learned real quick, they're not going to do it again because they were taken immediately to the restroom and chastised. They were disciplined to the point where they understood that this was not good behavior and it needed to change. See, the Lord loves his children so much he Chastens them. Do you ever go through the Bible and see if God, as the Heavenly Father, does God ever say he chastens unbelievers? No. He doesn't chasten unbelievers. That terminology is never used for an unbeliever. Matter of fact, the Bible says he'll destroy unbelievers. <laughs> he'll punish unbelievers. But he's not chastening them. He's not disciplining them. He disciplines and chastens believers because why? They know him. They have a relationship with him. And so you come back to this, this matter. Is, it's a promise. It's a position. But it's also a practice. It's also a practice. And the last verse we looked at last week was John 3, verses 19 to 21. He says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Who's the light? Christ. And people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. We're evil. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. A lot of bad things go on at night. I remember when I used to do a lot of ride-alongs with the police department and the sheriff's department. I'd always want to go at night. It was boring to go on during the day, you know. During the day, you're going to, you know, meet some little old lady that lost her cat or something. I mean, I want sirens. I want the lights in action and chasing people. That happens at night, inevitably. Bad things happen at night. And that's what John is saying. He says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there's practice. Those who walk in light have that position as believers. But those who walk in darkness are unbelievers. Now you have to stop and you have to ask yourself this question. Does this mean that believers never do anything wrong? Uh, Just because of our position as a child of light? Well, the Bible also challenges believers. Believers. And it challenges believers not to walk in darkness. I mean, it's not difficult here. I want to kind of simplify it so it's easy for you to understand. We have a position in the Lord because we believe in the light, in in him as being the the answer for our salvation. He is the light. I'm a child of the light. If you know Christ, you, you shouldn't have any doubts about that. You shouldn't be wondering, wow, am I really saved? If you profess Christ and, and you're living for the Lord and, and you saw the change that he made when, when he took over your life, you shouldn't have to doubt your salvation because of your position in the Lord. But guess what? I've discovered real quick, and if you don't believe me, talk to my wife. I can flip over to the dark side real quick <laughs> in my practice. Not in my position, but in my practice. And I think we all could say that. And our depravity, my depravity, won't be removed until the rapture of the church. Amen? When we get our glorified body, that's why it's an encouraging message. Because the Bible says, then we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. But right now, here on earth, even though positionally I am righteous before God, positionally I have complete fellowship with God, Positionally, I am not in darkness. I am in the light. Because I live in this sinful body, I still stray a little bit. We all do. And we struggle. And we'll, we'll, we will struggle with it until he returns. Until he changes us in that moment in the twinkling of the eye. And when our body, if we're alive, will be transformed into its glorified state. But guess what? We're still here on earth, and if we try to live our life, our Christian life here, without the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not going to (laughs) work. And we've all discovered that at some point in our Christian life. If we try to live the Christian life according to our own will, according to our own power, what happens? We fail. And usually we fail quickly. Those who walk by means of the Spirit, the Bible says, will not carry out the lust of the flesh. That's what God said. If you live by the power of the Spirit, that's called the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not some spooky thing that the charismatics want you to believe it is. The filling of the Holy Spirit, you're already baptized in Christ by the Spirit of God. That happens when you come to Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are placed into Christ. That's what that word baptize means. It means to dip. It was used of a clothing. When they would stain, they would dye clothing, and they would take the sweater, and they, would, they wouldn't just dip the arm in. They would dip the whole thing completely under. That's why when we baptize people here in the Bible, what do we do? We fill up this tub up here with warm water, nice warm water, and you come in, you give your testimony, and we put you under the water. And We bring you back up. Don't worry. We do bring you back up. <laughs> Good. Finish my sentence. There, some of you are going. Well, I'm not coming back to this church. But we baptize you. We put you in the water, and it's a picture of your your being death, you're dying in Christ, and being raised to new new life in Christ. There's nobody that got sprinkled in the New Testament. Just look at the occasions when people were baptized. They saw that there was a river. They thought saw that there was water. They went down into the water. Somebody didn't come with a little sprinkle and sprinkle it on their forehead. That doesn't equate to baptism. And by the way, baptism, water baptism has nothing to do with your salvation other than a sign. It's a symbol that you're you're following Christ. It doesn't save you. A lot of people misunderstand that. They think if they're not baptized, they're not saved in the water sense. And that's not true. Think of the thief on the cross, right? I don't think Jesus took him down, took him to the river and, and baptized him before he went to heaven. So, we can't say that you have to be baptized to be saved, but we do say that you should be baptized as an act of obedience when you follow Christ. It's a sign that things have changed in your life. In the society in which Jesus lived, it was a big sign because a lot of the followers of Jesus were Jewish, and when they came to Christ and they were baptized in the name of Christ, guess what? Their family left them. Their society kicked them out. The synagogue kicked them out. Uh, They couldn't have anything to do with any relatives. They lost their businesses. I mean, it was devastating to identify with Christ back in the days of Christ. Today, we don't really understand that in our modern-day culture. But we have these struggles that are going on, and we have to live them out through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we don't, we're not going to be successful. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's giving the Spirit of God control of your will and of your actions. And that's a moment-by-moment practice. It's almost like breathing. Um, Bill Bright called it spiritual breathing. When you sin, what do you do? You confess. You exhale. Tell it to the Lord. But what do you have to do? You have to yield back to the Spirit because obviously the Spirit wasn't in control of your life when you were sinning. He's there. He's present. But He was not making your decisions or you wouldn't have done it. And then you ask The Spirit of God take control of my life again. And it's a moment by moment daily thing. And so we need to be reminded of that. But turn over to Galatians, or I mean Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5. And this is just a a neat text, and it's by the same author, so it's kind of Paul, and it's kind of an interesting um, section here. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, look at verse 8. He says, for at one time, he's talking to believers in Ephesus. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Guess what that is? That's position. That's your position. You were in darkness, but now you're in the light, he says. And then what does he say? A little later on there, he says, walk in the light. Walk in the light that's practice. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you're in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of the light. You have position and you have practice. The role, the goal of our Christian lives, I should say, through the process of sanctification is to what? Raise our practice up to our position. That's the goal. We want to be more like Christ each and every day. We don't want to become more like the world. We don't want to become more like the flesh. We want to become more like Christ. And then look at what he says in verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. So you're not going to go wrong if you're walking in the light. Verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, take no part, none whatsoever don't even have anything to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, this is a, a warning to, positionally, children of the light. This is a warning. Paul is saying, hey, don't, get, don't believe the lies. Don't think you can play with sin. Don't try to play their game. Don't try to listen to their stuff. Don't try to follow what they're saying to you, because it's deceptive. Don't hang around with people of the darkness because if you think you won't be affected by them in a negative way, you're wrong. You will be. That's a pretty powerful statement for Paul to make. Getting kind of quiet in here. But let's be a little more specific. Ask yourself this question. Is it not possible that, as children of the light, positionally, that we could look at what the darkness does and be affected by it? You think that's possible? I think it is. Is it not possible that we could listen to what the darkness has to say and their views and everything about life and be affected by it? I believe even as children of the light, we can be affected by it. If that weren't the case, why would Paul tell us in his epistle that we have to bring every thought, what, into captivity? Beware of what's running through your mind. I mean, you can't just ignore this stuff. You can't just go out there in the world and play in the world and say, oh, it's not affecting me as a Christian. Yes, it is. You may not see it at first, but it definitely is. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. And so he says here, you know what? Paul tells us to bring every thought into captivity, and you can't just ignore the world and and it go away. Why? Because we're in a battle. The Bible describes it as a, a spiritual battle. And here you have an enemy that is trying to tear us down, and he's, guess where? In the darkness. And guess what? He's... A a very skillful at deception. The Bible calls him angel of what? Light. Do you ever think about this? Dark behavior, darkness, in in a worldly sense, is usually highlighted by lights to attract people to it. Think about it. Look at just a city like Las Vegas, right, or Reno. I mean, you can see the lights miles away from that town. And yet, really, it's the center of a lot of bad things that are going on there. Darkness often comes with bright lights. See, that's the contrast. That's what makes it so seductive. That's what makes it so attractive. And the Bible teaches us not to have anything to do with darkness. Nothing. Stay away from it as far as you can. Matter of fact, back In uh, Thessalonians 5, next week, or not next week, the week after, we'll be looking at the the verse there where it tells us that, you know what? um, God says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And we're going to look at what that means in two weeks. But once again, you have the contrast between light and darkness. It's a promise, it's a position, and it is our practice. It should be our practice. Well, second point here in the outline, and this is where we pick up today, the challenge to believers because of that contrast. Because of that contrast, what difference does it make for us if we're children of the light? Well, first of all, he points out here a need for watchfulness. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says... uh, Verse 8? Yeah, he repeats it in verse 8. Verse 6, excuse me. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And he says the same thing down in verse 8. Let us be sober. The Greek, Greek verbs here in the original language behind this, the idea of being sober and watching, are present imperatives. And they carry the idea that this is continuous action, this never ceases for a Christian. In other words, you can't just take a little nap and be okay. It really communicates a need for spiritual vigilance. And it's not an occasional thing, but it's constant, 24-7. And Jesus was warning his disciples to be discerning enough to know they were in spiritual warfare and to be prepared by God to resist the adversary and it's it's interesting when when you look at that text where Jesus is telling them uh, about being confronted with in Matthew with the idea of Matthew 6:13 lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil deliver us from evil and when you stop and you think about that that is a very real thing in our lives, each and every day. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, tells us, "Be of sober spirit, be on the alert." Why? Same, same, same language that Paul used. Why? Because your adversary well, who's that? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So he's hungry. He's not some passive little pet. Sometimes you hear these people that you know they 'll start off with a, a lion or a cheetah or something you know as a little little cub in their home, and then the day comes when they finally realize well we 've got to get rid of this thing because it 's really dangerous you know it attacks one of the kids or something it 's a wild animal it 's just doing what it naturally does it doesn 't matter whether it grew up in your living room or not, and so this is the way that the enemy our adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom, someone, he can devour. And so he gives us that warning, but he also gives us an assurance in 2 Peter 2.9. He says, remember that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. We're told by Paul that we're all tempted in a lot of different ways, but God is always faithful. He what? He provides a way out of that temptation. Sometimes we're just too stupid or too stubborn not to take it, right? We're, the sin looks to, we're attracted by the sin of the lights. And we keep going to the sin and God's poking us going, don't do it. This isn't honoring to me. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Well, I think I can get away with it. No, you can't. It's going to not help you. It's going to hurt you. See, you can't overcome Satan or the flesh, I would say, by your own power. You can't just will yourself to do this. If you try it that way, you're going to really risk spiritual tragedy. I mean, when a military observer spots the enemy out on the, the fields of war, they don't just, that observer, the one guy looking through the scope, he doesn't just run out there, I'm going to attack him. No, right? That, that would be silly to do that. He waits. And he leaves it in the hands of his commanding officer when the right time is, how to do it. In the same way, believers dare not attempt to fight the devil but should immediately flee from him into the presence of their heavenly father. See, we don't, we don't think that way. We've been taught something different by a lot of the word of faith teachers. No, 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 you have to do war. You go out there and you come in. Listen. That's not, what, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says you should avoid that. Somebody asked me, have you ever cast out a demon? I said, no, and I, I don't want to. If I see a demon-possessed person, my, my first inclination is not to run to them. It's like, man, I can get away from this. Now, are there occasions when the Lord says, no, you need to deal with it? Sure. Do you have the authority in the Lord to deal with it? Sure. But the problem is we've got a lot of Christians in the church that think they got the authority, that don't have the authority, and they end up like the disciples going, man, we tried to cast this thing out, what happened? (laughs) So you have to be very careful of this. This is is something that's in a whole other realm. And it's not something to look forward to, some confrontation with the enemy, with a, a gleeful, you know, little sparkle in your eye. Going out to do spiritual warfare. No. As a matter of fact, the Bible says we should stand against the enemy. We have a defensive mode, not an offensive mode. He's going to do what he's, God's allowing him to do what he does here on earth for this period of time. And for the people that like to bind Satan, you hear these people all the time. Well, I bind you in the name of. My question is very simple Who unbinds him? Because he's clearly not bound. So if you bound them, well, then who's, who's over there praying? Well, please unbind Satan. I mean, it's ridiculous. This is fanciful thinking in our minds at best. That's not how it works. So the Lord says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, we don't want to go there. And so we need this watchfulness, and there's two reasons here. Because of the weakness of the flesh, Matthew 26, 41, which I alluded to earlier, Jesus is telling his disciples to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says this the spirit is indeed what? Willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. It's interesting you do a little word study on that that verse, verse 41. When he uses the word weak, ethanase, in the original language, it doesn't mean you're just a little sick. You know, sometimes people get sick, and how you feeling? Oh, i feeling a little, little weak. No, it's not referring to that. That's a whole other term in the original language. You know where this term is used? This term is used when Lazarus died. He was weak, and he died. It was used of Dorcas, and she died. This is a serious, serious kind of sickness. This isn't just a little head cold We're talking about somebody who's seriously sick, who has absolutely no strength at all. And when you say we need to be watchful, alert, because of the weakness of the flesh, this is a very serious matter, because a lot of times either we underestimate the flesh or we overestimate the nature of the flesh, and we get into a lot of trouble. When we talk about the flesh, we're basically talking about our human depravity, our human depravity. It's in a tendency to do evil. It's a default to do evil. It's a default to do what displeases God. And we can all go there. That's at the heart of every one of us. Paul says it. Turn over to Romans 7. Romans 7, 15. Paul, this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, this guy... He wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, he is a very big spiritual giant, I would say, in the halls of faith. Well, here's what he says about his own sinfulness and his own sin nature. Look at verse 15. Romans 7, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, For I do not under, understand my own actions. In other words, I don't even understand myself, he says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do... What I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. Verse 17. So, now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. This isn't blame shifting, this is just the reality of fact. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Amen? Amen? I think we all probably have a desire to do what is right, but look at what he says. But not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. <laughs> Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil Lies close at hand. Yeah, my plan is really to go to church on Sunday morning. You know, I really got to get back to church, and you go out and try to start the car. Oh, dead battery! What in the world? The kids are sick. But, I mean, you know, you think the enemy's just going to lay down and go? Yeah, go ahead, go to church. No, they don't want you here. He doesn't want you here. Evil's at hand. Verse twenty-two. For the delight in the law of God is in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he cries out, this is the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I was listening to Cudlow the other day on a financial thing, and he says, don't worry the Calvary's on the way. <laughs> this is what I thought of. Paul's saying, who's going to deliver you from the body? Don't worry, Paul, the Calvary's on the way. Thanks be to God, he says in verse 25, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Wow. So do we practice this not all the time. Usually we try to set up our own little deals, our own little hedges of protection and all these things and go out there in the world and get as close as we can to evil without thinking it's tainting us. But guess what it is? Do not underestimate the weakness of your own flesh. The Bible says that we should have no no confidence in the flesh at all. Zero. Not a bit. And yet we have people going on around us all the time who are saying they're living for the Lord, but they're not because they're trying to do it in the flesh. They're not doing it in the power of the Spirit. To try to do it in the flesh, I, the Bible is very clear, there's no, there's no power there for you at all. Just trust God. Trust His Spirit. Put your faith in God. That's why we're to be watchful. That's why we're to be spiritually alert. That's why we're to be trusting in God and keeping our eyes on Him and on His Word and on what God wants our priorities to be in life. Because as just a fleshly being, we can't handle it. We can't handle life. We need the help of the Lord. Amen? But it's not simply because of the weakness of the flesh. There's a second reason here, because of the work of the devil. He looked at part of this, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, same words, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then it says in verse 9, resist him. It doesn't say attack him, it says resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, the worst feeling is to think that this you 're the only one that 's going through what you 're going through that can lead you to the depths of despair and depression. Woe is me, man. I never had so many financial problems., well, I never had so many health problems. Ken and I were just talking man, what is it man? I've got a back and then arms and thumbs, everything hurts it's like, Lord, what is going on? I mean just the other day I was cleaning the gutters out. I was climbing up that ladder and i 'm thinking. I don't know if I should be doing this. (laughs) Lord, you're in control. You know, just keep my grip firm. (laughs) But I'm thinking, you know, this is how we think. And there's, there's brothers and sisters across the globe that are going through so much worse. So much worse. We have no clue what it means to suffer for Christ. They're being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. And then verse 10, it says, And after you have suffered a little while... Notice, Peter doesn't say, but you're a Christian. You're not going to suffer at all. No. We're guaranteed suffering. Why? Because Jesus suffered. And Jesus basically told his disciples, he says, yeah, you know what? I mean, I I know you're concerned about what I'm going to do and die and all that, but, you know, it's nothing compared to what you're going to go through, (laughs) which is amazing. And they did. They ended up giving up their lives, majority of them, for the cause of the gospel. At the end of the month, we celebrate the Reformation. Many men and women have given up their lives for the cause of the gospel. After you have suffered a little while, verse 10 says, the God of all grace... I love that. The God of all grace, who has called you, that's part of our salvation experience. The Bible says that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Scratch your head on that one. You weren't even around when God decided to save you. Think about that. I mean, that's like picking a, you know, in, in gym class, you know, when you had to line everybody up against the wall. And see, you know, okay, well, what do we playing, basketball? Okay, well, I want the tall guys, right? I mean, you can see who you want to pick. Can you imagine not even knowing who you, who's on your team yet? And just saying, yeah, I want, oh, let's see, Johnny, Louis, baby. I mean, we couldn't do it because we don't have the mind of God. But God chose us before the foundation of the world. Before there was an us, he chose us. To be saved. That's why it has nothing to do with us. It's not because of our goodness, it's not because of our choice of Him. The Bible said if God wouldn't have first loved us first, there's no way we would have chosen to love God. I remember one person telling me one time we were talking about sin and original sin and, and they 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 said this, this statement and it just blew me away. She said, you know, she said, I'm really mad at Eve. Adam and Eve, I'm like, why? Because they sinned. If I was there, I wouldn't have done that. And I'm like, whoa. Whoa, do you even understand the implications of what you just said to me? And we had to talk about it. That's a serious thing to say. But sometimes people think more of themselves than what they ought. And here he says, God has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. It's not something that fade away. It's not something that be given away. It's not something that you can run away from. It's his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then Peter says, to me be the dominion and forever. No, no, no. To him, to him, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have to remind ourselves sometimes of the need for watchfulness Because of the weakness of the flesh and because of the work of the devil. And then the second point here, and this is about as far as we'll get, the necessity of wearing spiritual armor. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And then what? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Ephesians 6, verse 13 says pretty much the same thing. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to go attack. No, it says be able to what? Withstand in the day of evil and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's like a bulletproof vest. And having your shoes... And has shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, he says. To that end, keep alert. There it is. With all perseverance... Making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we see the necessity of wearing spiritual armor. We're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual battle. We're not in a little playground spat. It's a war, and it's a war to the death. It never ends until the Lord returns. And when we stop and we think of what Christ has done on our behalf through Calvary and that He secured our salvation, that He didn't leave it up to us. No, He couldn't. We wouldn't have been saved if it was left up to us, beloved. But the word of God is very clear that as Jesus shared some of the suffering and some of the issues that he was going to have to go through, they, they almost rebelled against him. Remember Peter's answer, may it never be, Lord. And Jesus had to say, get behind me who? Satan. I mean, it's, it's amazing sometimes how we don't understand the plan of God and yet we claim we do. <laughs> because it's our plan. And God says, no, you have to surrender that too. Uh, God wants us to surrender everything to Him. And when we come before this table, it's a time when we can reflect on our own lives. How has that surrendering been going? Are we surrendering our lives daily to the cause of Christ, or are we still trying to fight it in the flesh? Are we constantly being filled with the Spirit, or are we constantly trying to grab the wheel from the Holy Spirit in the car and say, let me drive, let me drive. <laughs> and we end up in a wreck and the Holy Spirit taps on his shoulder and says, you want me to take the wheel now, pal? Oh, sure. We drive a couple more moments and pretty soon, man, we're clawing our way into the front seat and then we're trying to kick him in the back. It's just in our, in our being. It's what's going to happen until we have our glorified body. There's that constant battle going on. But we can be victorious over sin And death for the first time in our lives because of Christ's work on Calvary. And so as we prepare our hearts for our communion time today, this is basically a piece of bread, unleavened bread, and some juice, grape juice. And these are symbols that represent the body and the blood of Christ. They don't become the literal body and blood of Christ. We don't believe in transubstantiation as some churches do, where the priest has the power and waves some fanciful thing and says a couple things. And all of a sudden these turn into the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. That would be kind of gross. That's not what Jesus was teaching. We don't believe that here. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so this is just a symbol. It's something that represents the death of Christ through his body and through his blood. And if you are a believer, if you here have given your life to Christ, we invite you to partake of these elements you don't have to be a member of this physical church here grace bible church if you're a member of the body of christ that's good enough for us but if you're not if you haven't come to faith in christ yet there's nothing for you in this just because you eat this bread and drink this juice doesn't make you holy it it doesn't make you saved it doesn't forgive your sin none of that it's just a symbol so if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, we would ask you when the elements are passed, just pass it on. Just pass it to the next person. Nobody's going to judge you. That's between you and God. But there's always time. There's always hope for you to cry out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You can do that right now in the quietness of this moment, maybe even through the songs that we're singing. God will speak to your heart and cause you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. If he does that, feel free to partake because you are now removed from darkness and placed into light. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, Lord, that you would just minister your grace to us the next few moments as we remember the death of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I said, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, it's never too late. There's always hope in Christ when you cry out, and Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that God will answer when it comes from a repentant heart, a broken heart. We thank you, and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.